Well, if you've got a Bible, uh, what we're going to do today is a little bit different. We'll jump around uh, through various passages to address the topic. We're taking a break from our Sermon on the Mount series because the calendar gives us an opportunity to talk into, to speak into a couple different subjects. And so we're, we're, we're leveraging those opportunities. So last week, uh, Sunday, um, we acknowledged Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which was on Monday of this, uh, this previous Monday. And so we took the advantage, the opportunity to talk about racism. And then today we're talking about um, the topic of abortion. And there's a holiday that was instituted many, many years ago called Sanctity of Life Sunday. It comes from the word sanct- sanctity. It comes from this idea, this Latin word that really means holy. And so we're acknowledging the holiness of life. And uh, we're going to look at, at scriptures and As I said last week, this isn't about my opinions. I'm not trying to bring up these topics and say, hey, guys, I I want you guys to all agree with me on these things. What what I hope will happen is that we look at the scriptures and we go, what does God actually say? And are we aligning ourselves to, to, you know, what he has revealed to us? And that's the significant thing for me. And you might still come away from last week or this week and say, look, I don't don't necessarily agree with CORE uh, on these things, but... But I think it's significant that we examine the scriptures for ourselves and we see what has God said. So that's what we're up to today. Let's pray and we'll get to work. Lord, we pray right now as we open up your word that you would speak. Lord, by your spirit, through your word, would you help each of us to, to know your heart? And uh, as we've talked about issues that right now in our society are contentious and debated and, um, and cause uh, division and strife and chaos, Lord. I'm praying that as a church, we would be able to carefully examine what you say. And then, Lord, let us be your faithful people for your glory. Amen. Amen. So let me do it this way. We'll walk through a few different principles that we find in Scripture and uh, then what we'll do is we'll pull them together and see if we can come up with a conclusion. And then at the end of the time together, what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend some, some minutes really thinking through what does this mean for a community of faith? What would it look like if we really say that this is something that we're concerned over? What, what would it look like to actually be helpful in this day and age? So let's get to work. For the first thing I want you to recognize is that God declares that life is sacred. That's the first principle that we find, and I could go to numerous places in the Bible to make that point, but God repeatedly affirms that human life is a sacred thing. Um, Let's just start in Genesis and see what we can come up with there. At the beginning of uh, the Bible, there's a book called Genesis, and we get the creation account, and we find out that God is speaking all things into existence and declaring all things to be good. The things that he is making, he's declaring those things to be good. So in one sense, we could say all of creation is sacred. It's something that God has invested in. It's something that God has made, and it's something that's in relationship to him, and therefore it is holy to to the Lord. But then when we look at the creation account of humanity, we find that God does something very special there. He declares that he is going to make mankind in his image. Different from anything else in creation, he says, when I make human beings, they are going to be fashioned in my likeness, in my image. 
And though he speaks everything else into creation, with humanity, he takes up the dust of the earth and he forms Adam and he breathes the life-giving breath into him. And so humanity is, in a sense, more sacred than anything else in all of creation. Then we get a case study because uh, after God fashions Adam and then from the rib of Adam makes Eve, they have children and we've got Cain and Abel and their siblings and they've got this rivalry going on and there's some animosity within that relationship and we find Cain becoming, because of his sinfulness, becoming envious and jealous and murderous and he goes out into a field with his brother and he kills him. And God approaches him and begins to ask a line of questions, not that God doesn't know, but he's trying to help him through self-discovery to figure out what's going on. And he says, where's your brother? And he, you know, angsty dude that he is, he goes, what, am I my brother's keeper? Is this my problem here? And God says to him, the blood of Abel cries out to me from the ground. I know what you did. You're not going to pull a fast one on God. He's saying, look, this sacred life that I have imparted, you have taken and you are therefore responsible. You are accountable for that reality. So right away, we find out that life is sacred, and we are accountable for it. Then the storyline goes on, and we find out that humanity is wicked and sinful, and we get the flood account as God shows us what judgment will look like, and he purges the earth through the deluge of water. And uh, in a sense, humanity has to, to reboot. It has to restart. But we find out that sin is not this contaminant out there, but it's actually a resident in here. And it persists, it carries on, and humanity is still dealing with this problem of human sin. But then we get this profound statement in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, that tell us that the sacred reality of human life is maintained. Even though humanity is sinful, this reality of humanity being sacred is maintained. Let's look at it, we'll put it up on the screens. This is Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. God is speaking here and he says, And for your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. God makes this declaration way back in Genesis that human beings are sacred and lifeblood is special. So you cannot take human life without there being repercussions. God is basically saying here that human beings are made in in his image. That's the purpose clause they are given at the end. You don't do this. Here's why. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Human beings are special. They are sacred. That life is something that God has imparted. It's something that he has given, and it belongs to him. That's why there's an accounting here. There's a stewardship issue here. God is saying, this is mine, and to take it, you're going to have to answer to me because you're taking something that belongs to me, and you are defacing it and doing those things that are wrong. And so it's a stewardship issue. Now, the, the point that we're recognizing then is that life is sacred, And we have to start with this foundation, but this foundation actually stretches into all kinds of different categories. It helps us to understand humanity. It helps us to understand how God has made us and how we ought to deal with people. And what we begin to recognize is that all people are intrinsically valuable. So people with disabilities are valuable to God. They are made in God's image. People who are vulnerable 
are made in God's image. People who are different from us are made in God's image. Even people who are sinful, which that's the reason why I wanted to draw in the context of the flood. Even those who are fallen and sinful, God maintains this posture of human beings are made in my image and therefore are dignified and valuable. Point number one, life is sacred. The Bible affirms that start to finish. Point number two is, you know, we have to, if, if point number one is correct, then we have to begin to wonder, when does life begin? And the Bible is helpful on this front as well. And I would put it like this, life begins in the womb. And we could even say life begins at conception. Now, we could look at this scientifically and try to come up with when does life begin? And I think that's a noble thing to do. But what I'm mainly concerned with is what does the Bible say about this? And actually, they're not different things. Science and theology are not pitted against each other. When you do them right, when you do your theology right, and when you do your scientific method right, you end up with the same results. You end up realizing that they are working in harmony. So let's look at what the Bible says from Psalm 139. This is a Psalm of David. This is inspired scripture, and David is saying, this is a prayer, he's talking to God, and we'll put it up on the screens. He says, for you, talking to God, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So as David's reflecting on his experience with God and inspired by Scripture, he's thinking back even before he is born, he's saying these incredible things. God was intimately involved in his creation, and he goes all the way back to being made in the secret place. Um, when he says, when he was woven together in the depths of the earth, that's a figurative language. He's saying whatever's happening in that secret reality of inside my mother's womb, where it's hidden from everybody else, God, you were there. You were fashioning me. You were fearfully and wonderfully making me. He says, even his unformed body, your eyes saw my unformed body. So we might be tempted to look at you know, uh, the embryonic stage and go, well, that's just tissue. But, but David here is saying, even before my body took on what, what would be recognizable as a human body, God was there and he was at work. And so when we're asking the question of when does life begin, as we look at Psalm 139, it's, I think it's safe to say life begins in utero. And we could even say life begins at the point of conception. Now, God here in Psalm 139 is intimately involved in this activity. It is an incredible thing. God is fashioning together human life. And the result then is worship. I praise you. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That was my experience as well. Uh, when we went to our seven-week appointment, and uh, you know, if you're unfamiliar with what that's like, they've got this little wand thing, and they put it on the belly of the pregnant woman, my wife in this case, and they're looking around and telling you what they're seeing, and you're like, I'll take your word for it, because this is weird, and uh, looks like a bad art project, but they're looking at this stuff, and they're telling you, okay, here's this, and here's that, and, 
And then they have like a, it's like a microphone on this, on this mechanism and speakers built in and they, they kick the sound on and all of a sudden you hear the heartbeat. And I just, my eyes just filled up with tears immediately. And I was like, this is insane. This is amazing. This is wonderful. That's, that's, what, that's what David's describing here is he even thinks back on this reality of God's involvement in his creation. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I praise you for that. So life begins in the womb, but just so, so that you wouldn't think I'm just proof texting and doing a one-off little thing from one passage of Scripture. Let me show it to you also from uh, the Christmas account. In Luke chapter 1, um, you've got Mary, the, the mother of the Lord. Uh, she's visited by an angel, She's um, pregnant, and then you've got her cousin, Elizabeth, who is also visited by an angel and pregnant with the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. And they have a meetup. They decide, okay, let's get together, let's talk, let's encourage one another. And so in Luke chapter 1, in verses uh, 41 to 44, they meet up together, and you know, the, Mary comes in and she greets her cousin, And here's what happens. We'll put it up on the screen. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child that you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now, here's what's really incredible about this. She is using the word baby. So, so Luke is telling the story. He's writing this stuff down. Here's what happened. They had that meetup. Mary comes in, shalom, whatever, how, whatever they say at that greeting. And all of a sudden, the baby's reacting. And the baby is leaping for joy. And Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. So she's saying something very significant here. This is inspired by God. She's recognizing this reality of her encounter with the mother of her Lord. And she says, as soon as your greeting reached my ears, the baby inside of me leaped for joy. Now that word baby, what we have here in English, that word baby, it's the same word that Luke will use again in the next chapter. He's describing the baby in the womb in, in a certain way, but then when the children are both there, same exact word. So in Luke chapter 2, verse 16, when he's describing the baby in the manger, the, the baby being the child outside of the womb, he's using the same exact terminology. So the Bible is not saying those are two different things. You've got a child, you know, you've got a child who's born, that's a, that's a human. And then you've got something else in the womb. No, those are congruent, those are the same. Not only that, if you're looking at this story, you, you're also recognizing that the way that the, the child is being described within the womb is being described with human activity. The child can hear. Science can confirm that, but the child is able to hear what's going on outside of the womb. The child is responsive when it hears the, the voice of Mary. It leaps with joy. It's, it's even emotionally described. So, you, so you've got this reality that the scripture is painting of a child in the womb is a child, is a human being. And so when we 
think about what the scriptures are teaching us. Point number one, life is sacred. But point number two, life begins in the womb. It begins at the point of conception. Point number three is life, especially vulnerable life, demands protection. That's what the Bible consistently presents. It gives us this ethic of human life is sacred, so what do we need to do? We need to protect and preserve it. I'm going to show it to you from a few different places, and we'll work our way into the idea of protecting unborn life. But um, this, this idea, is, it runs throughout the entirety of Scripture. Human life is so, so valuable, so sacred, that we need to create things that would protect it. And I'll give you some weird examples first. So if you happen to have a violent bull, I don't know if you have one of those, but if you happen to have one, the Bible speaks to that in Exodus chapter 21. It tells us that if you have a bull that gores somebody, if it's a one-off kind of experience, then that, that bull is responsible and, um, and needs to be treated accordingly. But listen, if you, have a, if you have a bull that has a history of violence, this is from Exodus chapter 21, verses 28 to 32. If you have an animal that, that is known to be violent and it inflicts harm on somebody else, you as the owner are actually morally responsible. You, you have something that is doing harm to other people and the Bible says that that then becomes your problem. You're responsible for that and so it builds some laws around that. So there's a first instance of the importance of protecting human life. If you've got a violent animal and, and it's known to be violent, it's very important that you would kind of have some, some things in place to keep people safe around that animal. Here's the second example. Um, this one will make a little bit more sense to you because I'm, I'm thinking most of us don't have bulls at home, but mo most of us are familiar with having a home. And the building codes are a very significant thing. Um, we're supposed to build in a way that's safe. In fact, right now, uh, we're at the building, the, the new church building. We're waiting for the architect to give us drawings, and the architect is working with the city officials to determine the appropriate materials. Things have to be fire rated, and things have to be built in a certain way to keep things accessible and safe. And so we, we can get this one quite easily. But in the Bible, it tells us, if you build your home with an exposed rooftop, if you build your home with a walkout area on top, it is your responsibility to put a railing around it. If somebody falls off of your home and you've not done the proper things to ensure safety, if you've not put that railing around it, then it's you as the homeowner, you are morally responsible. That's Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 8. Now, this stuff, it makes sense to us because we're such a litigious society, right? Like, we'll, we'll sue people if we order hot cocoa and it's actually hot. You know, we, we just look for opportunities where if something goes wrong, we want to blame somebody else. So we, we get this concept that we have to do things in a way to try to keep other people safe. And the Bible repeatedly communicates that message. And we're, as, a, as a society, I would say we're, we're mainly comfortable with this concept. We have laws in place that protect people. Now, they are imperfect laws, but we recognize the sanctity of human life, and so we often will use these laws to try to protect people. I mean, even, even young children. We have laws that say, as a society, that's our interest. Children are our interest. And so if something is happening to a child that would put them in harm's way, 
we will step in. There are laws that will protect children. Again, they're imperfect, but they're there. And we acknowledge that and we recognize that. And we say, look, even if it's a, even if it's a close family member, if even if it's negligence, we still will value human life to the point where we say, as a society, we're going to build some laws around this to protect little ones, to protect human life. Now, will we use that same logic when it comes to the unborn? And that's what I think the Bible is asking us to do. Not only should we consider human life sacred, not only should we try to protect human life, but we should recognize that human life, if it begins in the womb, it also demands and deserves our protection. Well, this concept shows up in the Bible. Let me show it to you in Exodus uh, chapter 21. It's a little weird, but it serves our purposes here. It says, if people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life. Again, it's kind of weird, but it's saying around a pregnant woman, don't jack around. Like, don't be reckless around a pregnant woman because she is carrying a very vulnerable human life inside of her. And if you're fighting around her and you incidentally hit her and it causes her to go into preterm labor, well, if the child's okay, you're still on the hook. Like, you, you, we're still going to talk to you about the activity that you were doing, the irresponsible stuff you were doing around that pregnant woman. But if you hit this woman and it causes her to go into preterm labor and there's an injury, you are morally responsible for that. See, the Bible is saying human life and vulnerable human life demands and deserves our protection. We have to do things to try to help preserve and protect human life. So if you're tracking with me, let's review here. Let's think through the logic of this. Number one, human life is intrinsically sacred. It is made in God's image. It is stamped with God's own name. It's sacred. Secondly, life begins in utero or at the point of conception. Human life begins there. And thirdly, if what I'm sharing is accurate, human life demands protection that we have to do things to try to ensure the safety and the well-being of the vulnerable. And if that's true, then, I think it's very logical to say, as believers, we should oppose abortion. Just to be as frank as I possibly can, I think that's where we need to land. That if human life is sacred, and if it begins in the womb, and if we're obligated to protect human life, then we as believers should be able to say, we, we are not okay with abortion. But here's what I'm going to do now. I'm going to begin to talk about applications. And one of the preaching professors that I've learned a lot from, Dr. Brian Chapel, he says, this is where people get angry in the sermon. When it comes to application and you start to say, okay, what does that look like exactly? How do you apply this stuff? This is where we begin to squirm a little bit. So just giving you a heads up. If we're going to say that this is something we, we care about, we have to do much better. And I'm going to give you a couple different ideas for how we as a church can say we care about this issue, like we care about the issue of racism. We care about these issues, and so we're going to, we're going to create a kind of church that's actually valuable to society. So here's the first thing that we need to do. And this is consistent with what I've been saying for over five years now. We need to create a gospel culture. 
It is not enough to have gospel doctrine, to say the right thing, to say, look, here's what we believe. We, we can affirm these things. We can, we can oppose these things. We can say these sorts of things. The culture of the church needs to become a reflection of the gospel so that people are drawn to the church. So let me ask it like this. I'll put it in a question form. If somebody has an unplanned pregnancy, do you think they will run to the church, to us? Do you think they'll run here? Or do you think they'll run away from here? And why? Do you think that, the, that people who have an unplanned pregnancy will look at Park City Church and this group of people and go, you know what I need right now? I need to go to them. See, that's gospel culture. If they said, that's absolutely where I need to go, that would, that would mean we're doing something right. But the problem is, I would venture to guess, people who have an unplanned pregnancy, the church is maybe the last place they would want to go. Because it doesn't possess a gospel culture. It doesn't, it doesn't look or feel like the Lord. Right? Think about the ministry of Jesus Christ. Think about his, his earthly ministry as revealed to us in, in the Gospels. When you look at that, consistently, if you're looking at proximity, and you're going, okay, who are the people who are always closest to the Lord? And you go through the Gospels, who do you find nearest to him? Sinful people. People who are broken. People who are suffering. They're, they're always right there. And then in that mix, you've got the disciples, but then further away, you've got the religious people who are like this. I can't believe this is going on. Arms crossed, watching from a distance, condemning, being angry, being frustrated. Too often, this is the posture of the church. We don't look or feel at all like the Lord. Gospel culture, and this isn't unique to me, this is an idea from Ray Ortland. We've got his little green book, we just give that away. You want to read this thing? It's yours. Gospel culture is a big deal. We want to be the kind of church where people who have an unplanned pregnancy go, I want to be around them. Here, here are some reasons why. They're safe. I can share with them what's going on in my life, and I'm not going to receive condemnation. I'm not going to receive judgment. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be shamed for the things that I have done wrong, but I'm going to be loved and cared for. I, it's, it's an environment where you can be honest, where you can say what's really going on and people are magnetized to that. That's what happened in the Gospels. P people were magnetized to our Lord. So we have to be the kind of church where people feel like that is what they will experience by coming here. Now let me press it a little harder because this, this, has, to, this has to get down to the level of personal responsibility for us. Not only should our church environment feel like that, your life should look and feel like that. So the people who you encounter on a weekly basis, I hope that they would be thinking, I would go to them. I would go to their house. I would go and sit with them. I would go and share with them what I'm going through in my own life. And, I, and, and they would be somebody that I could entrust myself to. Now, if we're not willing to do that, then I'm not sure that we're really addressing this issue as God wants us to do it. We have to create a gospel culture where people feel safe to be vulnerable with us. Now, this is important for people who are 
experiencing an unplanned pregnancy. It's also important for those who've, who've already had an, an abortion. Um, I was just looking online this week, and I'm not sure if the numbers are, are firm uh, or undebated, but there, there is a statistic out there that one in four women up to the age of 45 will have had an abortion. And so we're talking about a huge percentage of the female population having had an abortion. So are we the kind of church where somebody who has experienced an abortion would feel safe? Or would we, contrary to the gospel that says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and we say, well, we've got plenty of that over here. We can give condemnation out. See, we have to become a gospel culture. Um, I was thinking about it like this. As our society moves away from biblical standards, I mean, sociologists, you can look at almost any study right now, Pew Research, Lifeway Research, just pretty much anything. We are becoming less and less of, of a nation where we've got a majority of people saying we are followers of God and of his scriptures. So what should we expect? Well, we're going we're gonna to have less and less things aligning to what God has said. So what is our strategy then? So if we're going to move away from things that God has revealed to us as a society, what's the church's response? How are we going to be valuable in our world? If all we're going to do is lob truth grenades at people, if all we're going to do is just lob grenades and go, abortion's wrong, and if, you know, abortion's sin, and you can't be a Christian, and, and be abor- that's, that's a truth grenade. What do grenades do? They blow people's faces off. Instead, we ought to have care packages. Here's, here's another idea that I was thinking about. We need to become the most helpful resource as a church. So if somebody's having, uh, if somebody's considering an abortion, if they've had an unplanned pregnancy, we should be willing to say, what could we do to try to make that less of an option for them to have an abortion? What could we do as a church family that would actually be helpful for them? Could we offer support, counseling? Could we offer resources, childcare? Could we offer life coaching and all these different things? Are, are there things that we could do as a family of faith that say, look, if we're really going to care about this issue, we're not just going to stand behind our keyboards and post about it. We're, we're actually going to be invested in our community trying to be helpful. And what would that look like? It would look like us partnering with organizations that specialize in these things. Pregnancy Care Center of, Rock, of, of Rockford, uh, Safe Families of Rockford, d- different organizations in our community where we can pool together resources and say, look, as a church family, we're going to help. We're going to figure out what it would look like to be a blessing to you in this moment so that you do feel like this is a place where you would come to try to find assistance and care. Christians, we, if we're going to say that we care about abortion, let's, let's be real about it and let's Roll up our sleeves and figure out how can we actually love people. Not just the idea of life, but how can we actually love people in real time. And that's what I'm inviting us to consider as a church family. As we talk about the sanctity of human life, how can we care about issues like racism, like we talked about last week, and abortion, like we're talking about this week, and how can we actually be a community of faith 
that displays the good news of the gospel so that people would experience the grace of God as they experience you and I. Let's pray, and uh, we'll continue to reflect on these things together. Lord, we are praying that as individuals, we would reflect your heart. Help each and every one of us to think through these different things that we've been talking about. And Lord, I, I want people who are here and people who are watching online to be convinced from the scriptures, from you, not, not necessarily from me. So Lord, would you make these things plain in our hearts? And Lord, as a community of faith, would you help us to think through what does it look like to actually care about these things? How can we be beneficial to the world in which we're living? Beyond mere platitudes, beyond mere slogans, how can we actually be a blessing to our world? How can we look and feel more like you? So that people who are struggling, people who are stuck in patterns of sin, people who are far from you are actually magnetized to your church, your people, and ultimately to you. Help us to be that for your glory. Amen. Amen. Would